So, Mark. Yes? This week's movie takes place over the course of a single day and especially a single night, during which our characters get maybe an hour or two of sleep in a public park. Yeah, Max. So what I was wondering is, what's your best story related to staying up all night? So I have never gone a full night without sleeping. Well, I've gone a full night without sleeping, but I have never stayed up for two days in a row. The closest I have come is there was one wild night with some friends in Beijing where we successfully closed out a bar in a country with no legal curfew, which means we did a bit of bar hopping at the beginning, but then me, a few of my friends, and then a couple random Europeans that we met there, I think we were at this bar until 7.30 a.m. when they said, please leave. (laughs) We turned it into a karaoke bar. This is the 30 Rock thing where you keep going to the after, after, after party. I mean, pretty much. But it's like the bartenders were drinking, so they were kind of drunk by the end. My two friends were singers, and they gave us a little concert. The bar had an axolotl there. It was so fun. This sounds awesome. It was a great night. And then I'm on the subway home as people are in suits heading out to work because I think it was like a Wednesday (laughs) because I lived a very different life there than I lead here. This absolutely counts as a staying up all night situation because like the characters in this movie definitely sleep on whatever mode of transit they get on at the end of the movie. That's true. But I got home and slept for another like I slept for like six hours from eight to two. So I didn't do a full like in college, you have your all nighters where you like stay up and then go to class the next day. I cannot do that. Did you ever do that in college? Nope. I did that all the time. (laughs) I, I am aware. I am the only person I know who slept every night in college. I just, I know that I just can't go without sleep. It's very important to me. Sure, that makes sense. Um, For a long time, I almost had the opposite situation. Like, in middle school, especially over the summer, there'd be nights where I just, like, did not fall asleep. Because, like, at no point did I get tired. And so I'd be like, all right, I guess, like, I've given bed a shot. So I'll just, like get up and read or play with Legos or whatever. Peaking in a three-day period in the summer of 2006, where I think there were two consecutive nights that I did not sleep at all. So I was awake for three days. Oh my God. And the nights in between. And then that third day ended with the midnight release of Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest, which was my first midnight movie. My God. And I came home from that And fell asleep like a baby. Well, I'm glad you slept. I cannot. That's just so far from my experience where I just sleep. My mom got me like this sleep ring for Christmas a couple years ago, or I guess last year. I don't know. And my average latency, which is what they call the time it takes you to fall asleep, ranges from four to six minutes. Good Lord. I just crash and even when i was like at my most depressed i was not the insomniac version i was the don't leave bed for 48 hours and like kind of fall asleep in and out the whole time depressed so i've just sleep every so often i'll have a night where i can't fall asleep but that to me 
is hell. See, I appreciate a good sleep. My problem is that, like, school has a pretty hard start time. Like, yes. you know, especially in the days of COVID, you can kind of, where people are working from home, you can kind of, like, log on and off at, like, slightly different times at least, even if your office isn't that flexible. Like, school's starting at 8, whether I'm there or not, so I gotta get up. But I get a lot of energy, like, at night, so I usually only sleep from, like, midnight-ish to 6-ish. I mean, yeah, the eight hours of sleep a night is an average. It is not a hard and fast law. Yeah. And you function on what your body needs. But for me, that is closer to the eight to nine hour side of things. Here's the thing. My body definitely needs more sleep. Like, I am (laughs) always... don't give it. Right. I'm always quite tired when I wake up. But then I bike to work and that wakes me up. And in the afternoon when I would be crashing, instead I bike home and that gives me energy again. And then I eat dinner and I'm good to go for the rest of the night. I, you, leave a very, you lead a very active life. I lead a life that tricks my body into thinking it's okay. Yeah. Uh. But better that than when I was doing all-nighters in college and I would fuel it with s'mores, Pop-Tarts, and Coke to stay up. Coca-Cola, let's be clear. <laughs> yeah, I think it was good to specify there. <laughs> I mean, if you have listened to 229 episodes of this podcast and could have conceivably thought that Will meant cocaine, I think his personality must not be coming across as strongly as I thought. And frankly, I'm sure I've talked about my love of Coca-Cola before. That too. God, our body, we treat just like trash from between 18 and 21. I feel every person I know just no self-care. Yeah, but, like, you know what? <laughs> That's something, like, I think back on it, and I'm like, what were my big meals in college? I'm like, oh, right, Subway meatball subs were, like, my big filling meal. Yeah, I mean, in a different vein, I look back at my time in China, and I was like, dinner at 10, bar at midnight, club at 2, bed by 5, class at 9. And that was a normal Wednesday. No, that stuff is unacceptable. Like, when someone these days has the audacity to start something at, like, 9 o'clock, I'm like, how dare you? Oh, yeah, I mean, for And to me, be clear, I'm gonna stay up till midnight, but I'm not gonna leave after 8. Yeah, 8 o'clock is the, like, latest I will go for a start time these days. But back then, all of my friends were Europeans, and that's just how they lead their lives. And I am susceptible to peer pressure. And also learned how to finish a bottle of beer in two seconds with just a bendy straw. Oh my god. <laughs> and Wait, I'm alive so you to had this drunk, day. You had drunk beer from a bendy straw before you sat there and let me drink a beer through a sour punch straw just to see <laughs> if it would work? No, I didn't drink beer through the bendy straw. You use the bendy straw to get air to the bottom of the bottle so that it drains faster. So oh you gosh. fold the bendy straw over the lip of the bottle and hold your hand around the bendy straw so that when you turn it upside down, air is sucked in through the straw and the beer comes out like in two seconds. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's like shotgunning, but for a bottle. Uh, anyway, don't drink beer through a sour punch straw. Those things are- <laughs> Yeah, that was that, a mistake. That tastes horrendous. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't help that it was terrible beer, I'm sure. I I don't remember. This was after I finished. You were still an undergrad, but I had graduated. Yeah. So maybe a PBR or a Coors rather than a Natty. (laughs) Right. Uh, Wow. Well, speaking of 
Americans interacting with Europeans and staying up to weird hours and some unusual drinking experiences. I mean, Mark, you gave us all the segues we need. Wow, I know. I'm really impressed. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast digging into the least important issue facing the world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We're going to dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at Richard Linklater's 1995 indie classic, Before Sunrise. Which is not Before Sunset or Before Midnight. Could I have told you which one was a one, two, or three before I watched this? No. I knew Midnight was not first, but I could not keep in my head, because I think it's clear now, neither of us had seen any of the before movies. Yes. I could not keep in my head whether Sunrise or Sunset was first. In my head, it was the course, like the titles followed the course of a night. So it's Sunset, Midnight, Sunrise. That's what I thought too, but now that I've seen it, I very much understand why this is called Before Sunrise. Me too. The problem is, whenever we're doing one of these, I just like check with my fiance. Do you have any interest in seeing this movie? Sometimes I don't bother to check. I know she doesn't want to see Face Off, but (laughs) I'll just shoot, like, you know, send her a Wikipedia page and be like, are you interested in this? The problem here is I didn't send her the Wikipedia page. I was just like, are you interested in watching this movie? And I said, before sunset. And she looked it up to see if she was interested and texts me, yes, it's in Paris. That's great. Um, Because she lived in Paris for a while. And I was like, no, I'm pretty sure this one is in Central Europe. And then I text her, it's whichever one is the first one. At which point she texts me back, well, I already (laughs) read the plot summary on Wikipedia before sunrise because I figured I needed to know it for the one you told me we were going to watch. I also like that she fully believed that we would just watch the sequel for the podcast, a thing we would never do and have no, no regrets not. about doing. Coming to you soon, Sex in the City 2 on We Love the Love. <laughs> oh my god. That's our next campaign is just in the hot tub time machine 2 vein, only terrible sequels. I universally like agreed upon bad sequels. Grown Ups 2, baby! You've seen Sex in the City 2? No, of course not. Oh, I th- when you said I like it, I thought you meant that you liked Sex in the City too. <laughs> no, I mean, I like the idea of us committing to like once a year doing a poorly regarded sequel to a movie where we have not seen the first one. I'm into it. Uh, but no, we watched Before Sunrise, which also sounds like a vampire movie. Sure. Um, I had not thought of that before, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know the movie The movie has enough cultural significance that I was aware it was not a vampire movie, but when we were talking about the titles, I was just like, wow, this series could easily be a terrible 2000s vampire romance series. I mean, the structure that I lined up of Before Sunset, Before Midnight, Before Sunrise is literally the title sequence of the Twilight movies. That might be playing into my thoughts there. Yeah. Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, Breaking Dawn. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, this movie, much better than Twilight, which you'd be I would surprised. say this is better than any of the Twilight movies. <laughs> you'd be surprised to learn, I just remembered that we did Twilight on this show. That's because we did Twilight three and a half years ago. I know. We've done 229 episodes. I can't be expected to remember all of them. 
And that actually, Mark, I want to note is true. Even though this is episode 229, it is our 230th episode because we did a bonus episode on What If? Oh my god. That I have very fond memories of. Still holding out hope for season two there. I wish the show Netflix forgot to cancel. So, um, we've never seen this movie. Mark, what is your relationship, at the very least, with Richard Linklater? Um, I've seen Boyhood. Sure. I believe that's it. Let me go look at his uh, filmography real quick. I mean, I have a lot of friends in high school that were very into this movie. Really? Yes. Oh, I've also seen School of Rock, of course. Sure, yeah. That's the one that people I knew were into. I mean, it's like, you know, my edgy high school friends who thought they were super cool were very into the before series. Yeah, which at the time there would have just been the two, because the third one was 2013. Right, so it was just the first two. For some reason, I was convinced that Greta Gerwig was in this. She would have been like 12. (laughs) You know, (laughs) fair. I don't know why. In my head, Greta Gerwig was involved in this series. Oh, I nailed it. She would have been 12. That, that's wild. Wow. So I just knew it as that movie that my artsy high school friends and college friends were into. Mm -hmm. That Ethan Hawke was in it. But that's about it. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I had seen a Linklater movie until I saw Boyhood in theaters. Because I didn't see School of Rock until, like, fall 2020. Wait, really? Yeah, I just did, never saw it. I loved School of Rock. Yeah, good movie. I was not alone in that opinion. Actually, the only link later I've seen is Boyhood, School of Rock, and this. Um, the other one that a lot of people have seen is Dazed and Confused, which, of course, is a huge breakout for Matthew McConaughey and also for Linklater, to a certain extent, for people who had not seen Slacker. Yeah, I've heard of Dazed and Confused. I'm looking at his list, and very few of the others I even recognize. Yeah, he did a Philip K. Dick adaptation. Um, didn't he direct Last Flag Flying? Yeah. Mm, yes. Which is like a weird thing where it's never acknowledged, but is a sequel to another movie, but with none of the same actors. Where it's like, it's it's adapted from a novel, and the previous novel had been made into like a well-regarded movie. And then like 40 years later, he made a movie of the sequel to the book, but with none of the same performers. Uh, this is also a reminder that Merrily We Roll Along is filming. Oh, heck yes. I'm, I'm excited about that. I love Merrily. I mean, wait, so like, what? it started filming when? Like, two or three years ago. Two, okay. So we will see this in... Like, in like 15 years. Yeah, okay. Assuming everyone, like... The, the insurance you got to take out on that project. Oh, what, my God. It must be so expensive. Um, I think A24 is producing it. No, it's Blumhouse. Right. I, I knew it was someone weird for it, for a Sondheim musical. A24 makes sense. Blumhouse? I guess they're the risky, they're like big risk takers. But like they're smart risk takers, so they usually don't actually put a lot of money into something. And like, yeah. I guess once you get the rights to Merrily, which are probably one of the cheaper Sondheims, you know, you got to pay people to, like, pick up and put down every couple of years, but you're not paying for a long shoot each time you do that. Right. It films only every couple years, yeah. Yeah. Mark, I don't know how well you know Merrily we roll along. I do not. Yeah, so it's told backwards. I know that (laughs) Lady Bird sings a Merrily song in Lady Bird. Well, no, her audition, she sings Anyone Can Whistle. Oh right, but she's the play they the put play on. They is do is merrily. 
Yeah, which is a fantastic choice for that movie. It's, you know, which is one of the little details in that, that rule. But it's told backwards, so basically, the stuff they have already shot is the end of the movie. And they'll just keep working their way towards the beginning as they go. Hmm. I'm excited. I think it'll be interesting if it happens. Look, I really hope that it does. It's a show that I like a lot. One of the interesting things about it is that by shooting it this way, at every stage of the movie, Ben Platt gets to act his own age. (laughs) Uh, I forgot he was in it, though. I, like... He's fine. The problem was the movie. It was not exactly his fault. But his response to the criticism has really soured me on him. The thing that's keeping me going on Merrily is Beanie Feldstein as Oh, Mary, yeah. That is definitely... Be awesome. She is so good at everything. I was so excited when they brought her back in What We Do in the Shadows. Yes! Mark, that show rules. <laughs> it's maybe the best show on TV. <laughs> it's maybe the best show currently being made. I, like, mainlined it in the fall, and... I've been, like, a little bit empty ever since, because, like, every couple of weeks I'll be like, oh, I should just put on another What We Do in the Shadows, and then I remember that there are no more. Well, you can always restart it, which I've done twice. Yeah, instead I've been watching the original Cable Access Gethard Show episodes on YouTube. Um, might I recommend King of the Hill if you have not watched it? Which is a Mike Judge show, right? Yeah, it's really, it's really good. Mike Judge, also a part of the Austin film scene, along with Richard Linklater. We did it! We did it. We're back. Yeah. So before sunrise, what a good movie. Yeah. It's so nice. Yeah. It's it's the kind of thing that like for as simple an idea as it is, it's also the kind of thing that you can only really do in movies where it's pretty much just two actors talking to each other. And on paper, you're like, I mean, that could be just like a dialogue on stage. But so much of this movie is the location work too. Like you really feel these people walking through this city and kind of stumbling upon different things to do with their night and different places to be. And even though they do not attend Bring Me the Horns of Wilmington's Cow, which I was excited to see, they still have all these very cool experiences wandering through Vienna. I think this movie would be so easy to make so bad. And it's, <laughs> oh my gosh, yes! It, like It's so impressive that this movie is good. Because this is, I mean, one slight wrong turn in this movie could just absolutely lose all momentum and be terrible. Right. It's the kind of thing, I'm sure this movie inspired a ton of dreadful imitators. Oh my god, yeah. At the very least, a ton of crappy student films. Because it's the kind of thing that looks really simple, but is really hard to make work. Mm -hmm. It's, um, there's, there's a quote, I think it's John Voight. Talking about National Treasure. I know it's someone about National Treasure. Described the movie as a souffle. Like, it looks pretty basic, but it's the kind of thing where if you do one thing wrong, it all just falls apart. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely this movie. If you had cast the wrong people, even two great actors, if they don't have the right chemistry, doesn't work. On top of that, by all accounts, especially Julie Delpy's, she and Ethan Hawke rewrote a lot of the script to this movie. They're not credited on this one. Yeah, they have writing credits on the next two, though. Yeah, they are credited as writers on the other ones. This one's just credited to Linklater and Kim Krizan, who had been in his previous two movies. He said, like, I had this idea. I wanted to make this movie. Realized that a woman needed to be involved in writing it, which good on him for realizing I know. that. What a, what a surprisingly rational realization for 1994. Right, the thing that, like, that still felt like a, oh, wow, good for you, when they did it on the last duel in 2021. 
Yeah. But he hired her and they wrote it. And then Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke apparently rewrote a lot of it. Delpy claimed that like most of what they brought in was the romance. She said that the screenplay that Linklater and Chrisanne wrote was a lot of conversations without as much of the charge. I can kind of see that. I mean, you could do this kind of movie without romance and it would also be interesting. Yeah, I like the romance of it, though, because that makes the question mark at the end of it. Yeah, so I mean, much I'm very more. excited to talk about that. Yeah. I also just love that they don't have a huge fight. Yes, they have like mild arguments. Yeah, they have mild arguments, but there's never a question of like the two of them are gonna stop hanging out. Because there's like, there's no stakes except for what they're feeling in the moment. Like they could walk away from each other at any point in the movie and it wouldn't matter, but they don't want to. Right. It's just, I think that the easiest trap to fall into would be to follow the classic romance trope of, you know, the build up, the fight, the breakup, they get back together. I think that would be a mistake in this. I just like that there was never actually stakes. Right. The lesser version of this movie, they have a big fight. They go their separate ways. They, like, meet up again at the station or something in the morning where, like, she's gone to get her train and he has come because he had to see her one more time. Yeah. That would just, like, that's the Richard Curtis version. Yeah. (laughs) The Richard Curtis, like, dramatic gesture. And look, Richard Curtis also makes things that only work as movies, and they are fun for what they are, but... I did think that when we started it, one, when we started it and it was in German... At one point, Scream, I had wanted to watch, and it was on Pluto TV, but it was only in Spanish. And I was like, couldn't figure out how to change the language. So when this started and they were talking in German, I was really just like, are they going to start speaking English? Do I need has to Hoopla like... Has Hoopla done you dirty? Has Hoopla done me dirty? And then I had assumed, because you texted me that it was on Hoopla, I'd assumed you'd started watching it. So I was like, no, it's probably fine. And then it no, goes I on No, I texted you like while. the day before I watched it. <laughs> Yeah, it goes on for a little while, but then eventually they start speaking English. Um, You also texted me that you had been excited for me when you thought the whole movie might be on a train. And let me tell you, obviously, I knew it was a movie of walking around a city. I know that's like the deal with each of these before movies. But when they do like 25 minutes on the train, I was like, yeah, this whole movie should be set on the train. This rules. I do think that if you wanted to do the whole movie set on a train, you should do a play. Yeah, and like, I don't know, maybe like someone should be murdered, and everyone did it! Still a great resolution. I mean, it's a classic. It's an all-timer. It's an all-timer. You know, we're recording pretty far in advance. By this point, uh, there will have been enough champagne to fill the Nile. I just, I really hope that in Death on the Nile, they really play up like they do in the book. The fact that the, like... The main suspect has Latin blood, and by that they mean she has a French mother, and the reason that she's crazy is because she's only half English. She's full of Latin fire because she is French. What a different world the 40s were. (laughs) I don't know Death on the Nile at all, actually. That's fantastic. I'm delighted to know that. So it's like the setup is there's the two married couple, the wife is extremely wealthy, and then she marries this man. And the man's ex-girlfriend is on the boat with them. Oh. And she's like, crazy. I will not give away the ending. Yeah, but that's, it is also that's pretty compelling. One. I am curious to know 
whether they are going to bother to square the circle of Kenneth Branagh's murder on the Orient Express ended with, like, him being called, like, there has been a murder in Egypt, like, kind of implying, like, death on the Nile is next. But then the trailer of this movie, at least, suggests that he shows up and then there's a murder. Yeah, I mean, he, all Agatha Christie movies, they don't start with the, like, Hercule Poirot isn't usually called in to investigate a murder. I know. That's, I'm just wondering if they're going to deal with that at all. I doubt it. There have been so many really funny Gal Gadot tweets recently. Yeah, it's funny that the, like, enough champagne to fill denial became a meme when it did. Because it was, like, two months after that trailer came out. So I don't know if there was, like, a big ad buy during Monday Night Football or something and everyone was seeing it a lot. Because I feel like it did coincide a little bit with the playoffs. But I just know that I've been seeing this trailer for ages and all of a sudden everyone was talking about it. One of my favorites was someone tweeted, there's no such thing as an unskilled worker. And someone reply tweeted with just accept Gal Gadot. I think Gal Gadot is a very striking performer. I think she's quite good in that original Wonder Woman movie. But part of what makes that work is that like, she's basically playing an alien. Yeah. Like she's playing someone who does not know how to interact with humans. Right. And look, you and I are still watching our way through the Fast and Furious movies. Maybe we'll love her when she shows up there. Oh my god, I forgot. And we have also not watched Red Notice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the only Gal Gadot performances I've seen are uh, Wonder Woman and the Imagine video. Uh, which I did not watch. And then that terrible trait. Uh, she's in like an AT&T commercial or something. Oh. Yeah, anyway, uh, before Sunrise. Before Sunrise. Right, so... Um... Speaking of, of performers, we have in our core, we have Julie Delpy, who's a French actor. She already had two César nominations at this point. That's crazy. Which is like the French version of the Oscars. And then we have Ethan Hawke, who is just at this point where he's like finally transitioning away from playing kids. Like he debuted in Explorers, like playing a child. And then, of course, has this huge performance in 1989 in Dead Poets Society, where he plays like the main kid. He is a very good actor. Yeah. I know nothing about him. Well, he's kind of fascinating because, like, he's one of those guys who, like, has figured out how to make kind of whatever he wants to make. And the way to do it is to, like, do one Blumhouse movie a year, like, one Blumhouse horror movie. And every once in a while it hits. Like, he was in that, like, this year, I don't know what it's called, like, the phone call or something. And he'll just do one of those every once in a while. And then when they hit, that gives him enough money to go off and, like, Make his John Brown miniseries for Showtime. Yeah, he is just, like, you can tell he wants to do only the artsy stuff. But I also do appreciate his willingness to just be in, you know, whatever will give him a paycheck. But his value is that, like, he's not phoning it in there. Like, he's going to go do a Blumhouse horror movie, and he's going to give you a good, like, horror performance. Right. And, like, he'll hop genres. Mark, (laughs) do you know that Ethan Hawke is in Moon Knight? In Moon Knight? Okay, Mark, let's dial it back. Do you know what Moon Knight is? I do not. I love the turn that this show has taken now that you barely go to the movies and are not on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I really am not keeping up. Is this a new thing? Is this not <laughs> Moonfall? No. Moonfall, which, by the way, will be like two months old when this episode comes out. I'm committing to it right now. Moonfall's gonna be good. I hope so. I don't think so, but I hope so. Moon Knight is the next Marvel Netflix series, which I think will be like halfway through when this episode comes out. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it won't. I don't know when this episode comes out. (laughs) Um, It stars Oscar Isaac. I think Ethan Hawke is the bad guy. 
Moon Knight is like Batman if Batman were fully insane because he was possessed or cursed or he's the avatar. I haven't read a lot of Moon Knight. He's the avatar of an Egyptian god. Okay. <laughs> and so he basically acts like Batman, but with weird Egyptian stuff thrown in there. That sounds very strange. I am intrigued. I like weird. We will find out. Yeah. Um, I think a good description of Ethan Hawke, looking at his filmography I just saw, is in 2013, both Before Midnight and The Purge were released, starring exactly. Ethan Hawke. I knew he was in a big Blumhouse franchise. I forgot it was The Purge. Yeah, I think he's only in the first one, because they're anthology. Okay. But he probably made a good amount of money on The Purge. Oh, that yeah. first one made a lot of money. Those are big money makers. That's the Blumhouse way. It's the Blumhouse way. Um, speaking of making money, this movie kind of did. Yeah, I saw. Kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's a tiny indie from 1995, like, during that period of the indie boom. You know, like, Pulp Fiction is the year before. Yeah. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 1995, and then wildly opened theatrically eight days later. That's, that's insane. That's right. nuts. That's the kind of festival dice roll that you see every once in a while where... Like, sometimes it works and it's like Hustlers. Like, a movie, like, Hustlers premieres at TIFF and it opens in theaters the next weekend and all the hype gets people to go. Like, you and I saw Hustlers opening weekend because of that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the Goldfinch. And (laughs) the Goldfinch premieres at a festival and the reviews are so bad that when it opens a week later, nobody goes. My God. Yeah. Did anyone see the Goldfinch? No, I think zero people saw the Goldfinch. Like, that's like, when you pull this move, you get no marketing campaign. Like, what happens at the festival is your marketing. I mean, it was a good bet for this one. Yeah, it worked out. They made five and a half million dollars. The movie only cost two and a half. Wasn't on a ton of screens, so, like, good for them. They also submitted it to the Berlin International Film Festival, and Richard Linklater won the Silver Bear for Best Director there. Um, this movie also has a bigger, I feel like it has a bigger impact than five million dollars would have you believe. Yeah, it has a long tail culturally, you know, it does pretty well on home video and among the film school crowd. Mm -hmm. They also, of course, were nominated for an MTV Movie Award for Best Kiss. (laughs) Of course. And they lost to Dumb and Dumber. That is bad. (laughs) That is an MTV Movie Awards move, though. Yes. A fun fact I just learned, The Purge is set in this year, the first one. In 2022. It is, indeed. Oh, wow. So I guess all crime is about to be legal for one day. Well, apparently it was actually legalized in 2014. Like, the purge started in 2014. Okay, so that's when the first purge happens. Yeah. I wonder if they set the film The First Purge in 2014, like, as a period piece in the past. I mean, probably. I guess so. I'm gonna go, after this, I'm probably gonna read the Wikipedia summaries of every purge movie, because I have no interest in watching, but I'm curious. Yeah, like, every time I see a trailer for a Purge movie, I'm like, I vibe with this premise, but I don't know that I could sit through it. Yeah, I don't think I would enjoy it. But it's like, every Purge movie seems to have more interesting political things to say than, I don't know, an Adam McKay movie. Yes. I mean, they apparently are very interesting politically. Okay, I feel like we should get back to the romance of Before Sunrise. (laughs) Yeah, it's the whole movie, so we should probably (laughs) get there so we can talk about it. So every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to keep us on track, something we're really good at this week. Will, will you take us to point number one? 
All right, so point number one of this movie is set on that best, supreme, and most romantic form of transportation, a train. Says this trip around Europe been good for you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's been, um, it sucked. You know? What? <laughs> no, it, it hasn't, it's, it's had its, um, well, I'll tell you, you know, sitting, you know, for weeks on end looking out the window has actually been kind of great. What do you mean? Well, uh, you know, friends, you have ideas that you ordinarily wouldn't have. It's such a classic train, too. Yeah, it's just, a, it's a train across Europe. We have Jesse, who's this American, I don't know, recent college graduate, it seems like. Yeah, a guy. He doesn't seem to have, like, a full career yet. Well, because he was planning to come to Spain for an indefinite amount of time. Yeah. So, uh, he's riding the train, and... We have this uh, French college student, Celine, and they wind up sitting across from each other because she has decided to move away from, as you mentioned, the loud, (laughs) arguing German couple. The ones who who made me think I was watching the wrong movie. And so they just start chatting on on this train about, like, who they are, what's going on with their life. It starts with a classic, oh, what are you reading? Oh, what are you reading? Look, an an interesting question. Always a good icebreaker. They go over to the lounge car. They have a meal together. They're just, like, chatting about what's going on. Trains are great. I love trains. It's really nice. It's just, like, such a nice intro. And then he proposes something crazy. Before that, well, I don't know if this is what you're going to say about his crazy proposal. What did you think of his cable access show idea? I mean, it's the Truman Show. Yeah. In a way. I think it's a good idea. Because the thing that makes it different from the Truman Show is... It shifts to a different person every day. Yeah, it does sound interesting. I think it sounds like a logistical nightmare. Especially in 1995 when you can't just like broadcast over the internet. Right. Because the idea was it would be a 365-day, 24-hour cable access show where every day like a person like from a different part of the world would just have their entire day broadcast. It's interesting, but yeah, could not be done. Especially not in 1995. Like today you could do it. It would take some work, but it could be done. But that is not as crazy idea that I was thinking about. Oh, okay. That's fine. So he is on the train from Budapest to Vienna. She's going all the way to Paris. But he says, you know, I'm spending the night in Vienna. I don't have the money for a place to stay. So my plan is just to walk around until my flight in the morning. Come with me. Right. He's like, look, the worst thing that happens, it turns out that I'm terrible, and you just leave me, and you get on a train. There's plenty of trains. She can always just get on another train. And she says, yes. Yeah, sure. This, by the way, is inspired by a real thing that happened to Richard Linklater that was not quite as extreme. But according to him, at one point in, like, 1989, he was in a toy shop in Philadelphia and struck up a conversation with some woman. And they kind of hit it off and wound up walking around Philadelphia for most of the night. And then parted ways. According to Linklater, they continued talking on the phone for a while before trailing off when he got into a more serious relationship. I'm curious, would you do it? Oh, I mean, would I do it now? Well, not when you're engaged to But like, would I have, especially like, would I have done it when I was like 23? Possibly. Yeah. I think if I was vibing with a person as hard as these two are clearly vibing, even by that point, I'd probably do it. Yeah. I mean, again, like, you know, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I mean, some pretty horrible things could happen. Yeah. But, I mean, the nice thing is you will be in public the whole time because there is no place for you to go. 
So yeah, no, I mean, I, it, it's cool. It's a cool idea, right? Cities yeah. are good. Walking around cities is good. It's a cool idea. And we will see it unfold in point two. Yeah. So point number two is basically their day walking around Vienna. All right, I got an idea. Are you ready? It's Q&A time. We've known each other a little while now. We're stuck together. So we're going to ask each other a few uh, direct questions. All right? So we ask each other questions. Yeah. And you have to answer 100% honestly. All right, first question. You. Describe for me, yes, I'm going to ask you. Describe for me your first sexual feelings towards a person. <laughs> my first sexual feelings, oh my God. They go to this, like, basically, it's not a potter's graveyard because they have, like, gravestones, but a, a graveyard of unknown people who washed up on the banks of the river. They, like, you know, go to some cafes. They visit a church. Most importantly, as far as I'm concerned, they meet some lovely Viennese actors. Yes. They're on the bridge. This is, like, the first thing they do. They're walking around, and they ask, like... They're, like, trying to decide what to do. We're here for a day. What should we do? And these guys are like, I don't, I don't know. Why are you just here for a day? Right. And they're also, like... I mean, so it must be, you know, four-ish, because they're like, all the museums are closing. There's nothing to do. And then these guys invite them to see their play, Bring Me the Horns of Wilmington's Cow, in which one of them plays the cow. I gotta say, these are some lovely dudes. They seem fun. They're very helpful. I'm a big fan of these cow actors. I was kind of bummed that they didn't see the play. Yeah, I really wanted to see it. They also, as they're going around the city, are just kind of having meandering conversations, talking about their lives. At one point, they're on a trolley, because again, this movie is just committed to great modes of transit. And... He's like, we're going to play, like, questions and answers, and you have to answer 100% honestly. Okay, go. What's your first sexual experience? Yeah. And then she asks, like, have you ever been in love? Yeah, it reminded me of that time that, like, you and I were at a party, and someone's like, okay, let's have some small talk. How many times have you been in love? Yeah. Uh, it's also, like, the first time that my friend Marnie met Nick and goes, let's do the 36 questions from the New York Times to fall in love. <laughs> I feel like it's going to be tough in this episode to kind of capture the essence, like talk about what they actually talk about. If you want to do that, I feel like it would probably be better to watch the movie because our summaries of their monologues will not do it justice. Right. Yeah. You know, I'll drop in some of the clips like I always do for the points, but right. This is a tough movie to talk about as much as it is a talking movie. I would recommend just watching it if you haven't seen it. It's free on Hoopla. Yeah, you just need a library card. They go to some cool locations. They go to a record store. I I always think that the listening booths at a record store are really cool. Yeah, it's also so romantic in that listening booth. Yeah. That's the first moment where it's really just like, these two are in love. They're so hot together. Yes. And then they go on a Ferris wheel and they have a nice Ferris wheel kiss. Mark, what do you think of Ferris wheel kisses? I haven't been on a Ferris wheel in a very long time. And I've never done a romantic Ferris wheel ride. I'm intrigued, but they're so expensive. One time I was at an amusement park with a girl I was dating, and we were going to go on a Ferris wheel. And obviously we were going to make out on a Ferris wheel. Except then they had a single rider line, and they put one other person on there with us. Oh, yikes. (laughs) So then we're just all like the three of us sitting there on a Ferris wheel, not really talking. Why would you go on a Ferris wheel alone? It was so weird. Ferris wheels, I feel, are inherently social. 
Yeah. Ugh. So, I feel like the kiss kind of marks the transition from the day to the night. Yeah, it's it's sundown on the Ferris wheel. He's basically yeah. like, this is too romantic not to kiss. And she's like, all right, all right, I get you. Yeah, so I think this kind of brings us to point three. As the sun goes down, things take a turn towards the more serious. But you know what? What? I don't think it really matters what generation you're born into. Look at my parents. There were these angry young May 68 people revolting against everything. You know, the government, the conservative Catholic backgrounds. I mean, I was born not long after, and then my father went on to become the successful architect, and we begin to travel all around the world where he built bridges and, you know, towers and stuff. I mean, I really can't complain about anything. You know, they love me more than anything in the world, and I've been raised with all the freedom they had fought for. And yet, for me now, it's another type of fight. We still have to deal with the same old shit, but we can't really know who or, you know, what the enemy is. I don't know if there really is an enemy, you know? I mean, everybody's parents fucked them up. You know, rich kids' parents gave them too much, poor kids, not enough. Um, You know, too much attention, not enough attention. They either left them, you know, they stuck around, taught them the wrong things. You know, I mean, my parents are just these two people who didn't like each other very much, who uh, decided to get married and have a kid, and they try their best to be nice to me. They're going from cafe to cafe and having sort of more and more existential conversations. And one of the big things that keeps running through it is that, like, Jesse is at least presenting as being fairly cynical about a lot of things. Like, oh, you know, like, since I was a kid, I figured out, like, my parents didn't really want me, so, like, I don't really matter. Like, when you're dead, like, nothing really matters. And Celine is a little bit more romantic in her view of the world. Again, at least as they present things. But I do like, you notice, this is when they start, he starts walking with his arm around her. They start to act like a couple. I think what's notable is that, like, Jesse is always presenting as this more cynical person. But he's also always the one to push this sort of pseudo relationship forward like he's the one who wants the kiss he's the one who's putting his arm around her or is like later on like the one who's like we should have sex he's the one who at the end of the movie is like no i think we should talk to each other again but none of this is in a pushy way at all like it's in a very it's a romantic way he is not being weird about it right it's that he is he is not as sophisticated and aloof as he thinks he is he is legitimately feeling these things and you get a nice scene where they go to a bar and they're playing pinball and they talk about what really happened where, you know, she was in a relationship six months before he just got broken up with. That's why he is he's recovering from a breakup by riding around on the trains for two weeks. Because yeah, he didn't want to go home yet. I love that she has a runner that is basically like the plot of Basic Instinct. <laughs> like, <laughs> her running thing is like, yeah, I wrote a story about a girl who kills her boyfriend. And so my therapist, like called the police because she's like, you're going to kill your boyfriend. And I'm like, no, I just wrote a story and it keeps coming up. It's like, how intense was this story? And how specific was it? Yeah. So that's, I like that moment too. They also have that experience with the palm reader. This is one of the moments where he's trying to be like super cynical. Similarly with the poet, right? There's like a street poet that says like, give me a word and I'll write you a poem. And if it adds something to your life, you can pay me for it. And the poet comes up with this poem that I thought was like, Pretty good, especially given the constraints. You know, he writes it in like three minutes and it has to include the word milkshake. Yeah. I do think he probably has several poems that he reworks. Yeah. Uh, but still, even given that, milkshake is a tough word and it did feel like it fit. Yeah. I was impressed. Yeah. Obviously, it was a movie, so it was scripted in advance. Well, yeah. 
But Jesse is the one there who's like, you know, obviously, like, he's got a poem ready to go and he just plugged it in. And Celine is like, why are you saying that? Like, you kind of get the sense that she's like, even if that's true, and it, there's a decent chance it is, like, live in a world where you don't think that way. Just let the moment be itself. I love that they're such equals in this movie. I think that's one of the real strengths of the movie. Like, the movie also never really is like one of them is right. Like, it's just about them having the freedom of effective anonymity to have these conversations. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter if they tell each other everything because, in theory, they'll never speak again. It's so good. But this brings us to point four. They stomp into a bar. It's like a nightclub, late night bar. And he sweet talks the bartender by saying, explaining their situation into giving him a free bottle of red wine under the promise that he will send a check in the mail. Do you think he will? No. We all know he won't. The bartender knows he won't. The bartender's just a romantic. Yeah, the bartender clearly has no expectation that he's going to get the money. Yeah. And in the background, <laughs> Celine is uh, stealing so wine glasses. It is so funny because she's trying so hard to be subtle about it. Just like quietly like shuffle them into her bag. But she draws so much attention to herself. The bartender basically stares at her the whole time. Yeah. It's so funny. It's so good. And then they, they go to a park. This is like their big final moment where they have red wine at the park. I don't think we should sleep together. I mean, I want to, but since we're never going to see each other again, you don't make me feel bad. I wonder who else you're with. I'll miss you. I know. It's not very adult. Maybe it's a female thing. I can't help it. Let's see each other again. No, I don't want you to break our vow. Just so you can get laid. <laughs> I don't want to just get laid. I want to, um... I mean... I mean, I think we should. I mean, we die in the morning, right? I think we should. No, then it's like some male fantasy. Meet a French girl on a train. Fuck her and never see her again. I don't want to be a great story. I don't want this great evening to just have been for that. Okay. 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 We don't have to have sex. It's not a big deal. They're lying there in the park and they're making out some. And she announces that she doesn't think they should have sex because it'll just bring a a further layer of emotion into the fact that they're going to leave each other and probably not see each other again. And this is one of those scenes where they're clearly trying to walk themselves towards saying that they would like this to be something more. I mean, Jesse actually has this point where he says, like, if someone gave me the choice right now to never see you again or to marry you, I would marry you. And I do think he kind of means it, and I also think he wants to get laid. Yeah, it's definitely a bit both. And, I mean, they they do have sex in the park. Yeah, I mean, that's open. They have sex in the park. And then they get a little bit of sleep. And the next morning, they, they go to get on the train, and I, Mark, I was terrified that they were about to have an Elizabethtown moment. <laughs> I do not remember what happens at Elizabethtown at the end. Well, mercifully, the ending of Elizabethtown does not threaten us, because that is truly heinous. No, just uh, at one point, he says, like, I'm going to take your picture so that I can, like, remember this time and remember you and all that. And then he's staring at her. You may not remember this. Um, Kirsten Dunst in... Elizabethtown is literally the original Manic Pixie Dream Girl. She is the character for whom that phrase was invented in a review. Oh. But one of her, like, gimmicks is that when there's, like, a nice moment, 
she'll take a picture of it just by like holding up her fingers like an old camera and like doing a click. And I was really worried that Jesse was going to do that. But instead, they just stare at each other and they have a nice moment of like really looking at each other. Yeah. Do you think they will return to the train station? I guess we'll talk about that later. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, their their goodbye is long. My fiance was very worried that she was going to miss her train. <laughs> listen, listen, you know all this bullshit we're talking about, about not seeing each other again? I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that either. You don't either? I was waiting for you to say <laughs> Why didn't you say something? I was afraid maybe you didn't want to see all right, me. All right, well, listen, what do you, what do you want to do? Maybe, maybe we should meet here in five years or something. All right, all right, five years... Five years, that's a Two long years. time. It's awful. It's like a sociological experiment. Uh, <laughs> how about one year? One year. All right. One how, year. About one, how about six months? The train seems to hang out in Vienna for a while. Because yeah. it's not like she decides to go immediately either. Right. I was worried he wouldn't get off in time. So, you know, they're they're saying goodbye over and over again. Uh, she tells him, have a great life and have fun with everything you're going to do. And kind of at the last minute, he says, I don't want this to be the last time we see each other. And she's like, oh my gosh, I feel the same way. I was waiting for you to say something. And so they leave agreeing to meet there again in six months. Yeah, meet at that platform in exactly six months. I definitely think that they certainly both intend to in that moment. Yes. I think they do. I do too. Yeah. I mean, especially her. It's very easy for her. I'm worried that he won't be able to afford it. I think he'd figure it out on, like... They really, their connection in this movie is very special. Yeah. Almost to the point where, like, if I had to pick one, I almost feel like he's more likely to actually show up. But the barrier to getting there is so much lower for her that it's, like, it's kind of nullified. And I would say they're they're both going to be there. Obviously, we know there are two more movies. But, like, even that aside, yeah, I think so. So, Will, after watching all this unfold, do you find Jesse and Celine's romance believable? I mean, I don't know, man. (laughs) Like... It's, it's hard great. to say with this movie. But this, like, the whole movie is, like, there's the line where when the morning comes, he says something like, you know, we're back in real time now. Like, the whole movie feels atemporal. Yeah, I mean, it's just, like, a special moment in time that doesn't relate to real life at all. Right, so, like, how real is it? I don't know. I guess how real is that you would get off the train? We both said we probably would. We should take into account, like, I think that's, Easier for me to say than for you to say, and it might be easier for you to say than for an average woman to say. Yes. I do agree. It's tough, but I just think, I mean, I would for sure. And I think that, I don't know, their chemistry is really strong. So every week we rate the movie's believability from zero to ten. Where would you put Before Sunrise? I don't know. It is hard to place, but I'm thinking like an eight. Yeah, I'll do it. Let's call it an eight. Let's do it. Let's call it an eight. Boom. Do you think that Jesse or Salid is dateable? Jesse's a no for me. Yeah. He's a little messy. Yeah, and like the performative cynicism is not for me. I don't like Yeah. Celine, I think she's a yes. Yeah, she's cool. She's very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Like and in like a considered way. Like she's really like sort of digging in and picking apart her ideas. Do you think that Jesse well, I mean, we know what happens that they don't stay together. We both I mean, they think don't they stay will together, show together. Yeah. I think they both show up, but I mean, I have a general sense of what happens in the future movies. But okay, I do from not. what I've seen in this, I think that they meet up again and then have another day and probably don't end up together long term. 
That's also what I would be inclined to think. Now, Mark, if you had to pick one person from Before Sunrise to date, whom would you choose? I mean, there's not a ton of options, but I'm no. leaning towards the very romantic bartender who's like, okay. it really did not take much explanation to get him to give a free bottle of wine. No, he was good for it. We love the love and he loves the love. That's a good one. Um, I am going with the actor who plays the cow. Yeah, of course. I figured. He's a cute guy. He's very friendly, helpful, like genuinely tries to give them stuff. And, you know, it seems like he's got an interesting life. Like, he makes it clear, like, he is not a professional actor. It implies that, like, he has other stuff going on in his life. So, like, he's got interests. he got hobbies. Like, it seems like a good dude to spend time with. Uh, Will, many movies we cover are adapted into musicals. Do you think there should be a Before Sunrise musical? Absolutely not. I said it at the top. No. Like, this is a movie. It is all about actors in a frame, in a real location. Yeah. There's just Frankly, no editing is really no important way. to this movie. The ability to jump from one conversation to the next, to jump to them walking all over the place. The fact that like the ending of this movie is just still shots of all the places they went over the course of the movie, but yeah. like shown in the middle of the day. And how much weight that carries. Because you're like, right, these, this is where all of that happened. And it's like, nothing happened. It was just two people walking around. But, like, two people having a conversation can be meaningful. Yeah, it's really, it's a movie. It seems like you could do it as a play, but you couldn't. And adding music just wouldn't do anything. <sighs> all right. I think that's about it for Before Sunrise. Great movie. Would recommend. Yeah, this was a listener suggestion. Thanks so much. Um, it's a listener suggestion, uh, much like keeping the faith from quite a while ago. And I don't remember who it's from, but thank you for sending it to us next week. We will be closing out our trilogy of movies. We tried and failed to cover. We are watching mannequin. It's available at our public library. So I have put in a hold for it because someone else already has it. Well, it's cause it's not streaming anywhere. It's probably in high demand. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, Will, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from before sunrise? Ride trains, man. Trains are super romantic. Um, you're not on Twitter, so you might not know this. I'm taking a train to my honeymoon, and I'm very excited about it. I saw on... Instagram story, I believe, and I'm very excited for you. Yes, it's going to be great. My advice is I don't know, because most of the things that happen that start this relationship are things I generally don't like, talking to strangers being the main (laughs) one. But I guess, yeah, I mean, sometimes you just got to take a shot and suck it up and talk to a stranger if they are interested in talking to you. But also, do not impose it if they do not want. I mean, I like my move that one time. Where I just wrote a, like, what did I write on that slip at a bar trivia? Where I, like, drew a cartoon of myself and wrote, like... Oh, my God, yeah. I wrote a note of, like, do you want to go out with me, yes or yes, and put my phone yeah. number on it. Oh, I Which remember I that. I would like to note, worked. Yeah, I know. You got a date out of it. I got, like, two or three dates out of it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's good. It's not in the movie, but that's good advice anyway. All right, Uh, there you go. Until next time, I'm Gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye!